The question of all ages is a question that they ask in Matthew, the 21st chapter, in verse 10. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this? It's still being asked today. I received a book my grandsons gave me while I was in Austin, and they it's the name of it is the, the State of Religions. And it shows all the different countries and what's happening now and and where Christianity is and where all the other religions are. And it's just amazing that over six billion people in this world. And it's amazing to find out they're, they're asking, who is this Christ? But did you know that over two-thirds of people are not asking that question? They don't know enough about him to ask who he is. We're living in a world 2,000 years after our Lord died and gave the command to tell people who he was. And still there's over two-thirds of the six billion people that don't know him. One of the things a reader of the New Testament will notice at once is how the question of the identity of Jesus often arose. Even his own disciples wondered who he was. Although other men had arisen and presenting some unique claim or making known some special quality or ability, these were soon classified by the men around them of their true worth and they assessed them and they only knew they weren't the real one that they were looking for. A lot of time, a rabbi would arise and teach in the synagogues or one of the towns around, but men would soon grasp his teaching and the rabbi would move on uh, to another town. And there would be uh, unique individuals would appear, like on Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a place where uh, the culture of the Greek philosophy uh, and the Greek philosophers gathered, and, and they wanted to just hear some new thing and uh, about what was happening. But their powers, the people who had claimed to be someone great, soon disappeared, and uh, they didn't amount to anything. Now, with Jesus, it was different. With Jesus, it was different. Uh, from the beginning of his earthly life uh, and beginning of his ministry, in the minute the ministry that he had among his own creation, he would always speak and act and teach 
in, in a way to arouse curiosity and intense interest about what's happening. And, and he always made people ask a question about him. And, uh, and that's what we want to discuss this morning. And, and we want you to understand that who is this is very important. Who is this? This identity was a puzzle to the people when he came to this earth. And it's a puzzle today that needs to be solved. He was a man like themselves. And yet somehow he was different. He couldn't be classified. And if any did think that he was just another Judah of Galilee, you know, to whom Gamaliel referred and said, this one day wonder, why well, he'll fade. He's a mistake. If he's anything from him uh, and he has anything to offer, well, it'll come to the top and we'll understand. But Jesus wasn't that type of person. Who is this? Who is this? Both friends and foes alike asked the question. The question was asked by the scribes and the Pharisees, the exponents, the promoters of the law, of the ethics, of the morals of that day. Who is this who forgives sins? They would ask. It was asked by royalty. It was asked by King Herod. Who is this? of whom I hear such things as happening out there, all these miracles. It was asked by the representatives of politics, of the Roman political world. Uh, Pilate said, Who art thou? And art thou the king of the Jews? It was asked by the religious leaders at the religious trial of Jesus. You know, he had a religious trial of the Jews, and he had one before the Gentiles. And they asked him, Art thou the son of the blessed? It is the same today. It is the same today. When the teaching of Christ is applied to the immorality, to the loose living going on in our day, the question is asked, but who do you think you are? Who is this? When the ethical teaching of Christ, such as we find in the Sermon on the Mount, is applied to the present corruption of government and of local politics, the question comes back ringing again, well, who do you think you are? And who is this that's speaking? When the scriptural teaching of Jesus is brought to bear upon the nominal, the official leaders, the named leaders of the established institutional religion of our day. And if you try to teach them what Jesus said, they'll say, who are you? Who are you? Jesus knew that this question of his identity was always on people's lips and would always be on people's lips. And he became curious about the 
the various conclusions that were uh, that they were arriving to. So one day he asked he asked his apostles the same question. Well, who do you who do you say that I am? And they replied. And some said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And others say that you're Elijah. And others say that you're one of the prophets. But Jesus returned the question back to them and said, But I want to know, who do you say that I am? And you know, Peter asked, answered the question. And we remember that. And that's a great confession. And he said, Thou art the Messiah. Thou art the Christ. The Son of the living God. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, that's the truth. But I want, you, I want to tell you that that has been revealed to you. Not from human wisdom. Not from human teaching. But it has been revealed to you by God himself. Note that the revelation of the truth wasn't found in the sphere of religion. It wasn't found in law or politics. It wasn't found in the ethics of the day, nor in the king's palace, but in the heart of a simple fisherman from Galilee. The great question of the day, who is this? doesn't find its answer in the mighty glory of the Roman Empire, nor in the shining splendor of Greece, nor in the great elaborate and honorable religion of the Jews, but on the lips of an ignorant, unlearned fisherman. God has chosen the foolishness of things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, you know, if you are in the same position as so many who wonder, wondered then and who wonder today who Jesus was in the days of his flesh, the answer for you is not, this is the prophet from Galilee, but it's found in the great reply that Peter made that was revealed to him by the Father, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you seek the answer to your question from those who have never been enlightened as to the true nature of Christ's person, whose eyes have never been opened to observe Christ as the Redeemer of men, who have never seen the glory of God in the fear of Jesus Christ, whose hearts have never been regenerated by the Spirit of God, then you will be disappointed and you must turn away sorrowfully. The answer as to who this can only be and be given is to those whose hearts have been set on fire by the warmth of his love 
and by the revelation of the Father to them, by those who have been changed by the matchless grace and love of God, by those who have thrilled to the music of his name, by those who know his risen power pulsating in their veins. This man whom we preach is not merely a prophet of God. He is the son of the living God. He is the savior of mankind. He is the savior of people's souls who are in the flesh here and objects of Satan's pulsating desire to deceive them. This man is the answer to your great quest of life. The desire within you to find rest. This man who rides down the long corridors of time and across paths to where we are in history today. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And he wants to turn our question, who is this? Into the glorious triumph, the triumphal answer, thou art the Christ who belongs in the heart of every believer. Christianity has never sought nor claimed to give men cast iron mathematical demonstration and demonstrated proof of its claim. What it does do though is to offer men and women evidence that we can take hold of and it can just be plain that yes he is the Christ first I believe that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of mankind because of the miracle of the Bible the miracle of the Bible isn't the Bible on the same level as other religious books. Haven't the modern critics explained the process by which our Bible was composed and how it came to us? Oh yes, they have. Modern criticism may have explained certain problems, but it has also done a great deal of harm. And the extreme critic of course, have robbed the Bible of many of its miracles and miraculous elements, of its verbal inspiration. But the result of the modern critics' research are incomplete. And while we welcome anything that is going to clarify some of the so-called problems in the scriptures, we cannot accept the contention that the Bible can be explained adequately in human terms. It just can't be. One cannot escape the miraculous elements of the Bible. 
The scriptures themselves declare that they are given by the inspiration of God. And this inspiration came by the prophets spake, and as they spake by the Holy Spirit, and that's a good explanation. Thousands of years before Christ, men like David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel prophesied about the coming Messiah, gave some details of his life, and gave exact details of his death. Joel the prophet prophesied concerning the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit according to Acts 2. Hundreds of years before it's, the event happened. And it is not miraculous that there are events recorded in the Old Testament concerning the Jewish nation which has been treated as it has and is still treated as the Bible has said they will be treated. It has preserved, has been preserved, the Bible has, from ungodly men that have tried to destroy it down through the ages. From the fury of hell, from the flames to which it has been committed time and time again, manuscripts and fragments carried by early Christian scribes have been preserved from extension in the high seas. Others have been preserved from the effects of a long journey by early pilgrims across desert lands and from long dusty roads throughout their journey. We need to understand that the Bible is the miracle of the age. And a successor of scholars worked laboriously, bringing the New Testament manuscripts into form, completed and put it in a book. And we have it today. And it's all because man God has used man to do it. John Wycliffe was severely persecuted for his part in the translation of the Bible into English. William Tyndall was strangled as an old man and then burned for the part that he has in giving us the Bible. This book is the miracle of the age, and we need to recognize it. And it is, it is a blessing to us. We need to read it. We need to understand it. And we need to make it a part of our lives. But you know the second piece of evidence that I want to mention, I wish to offer, is the church itself. The church itself is, is a demonstration of God's preservation of who Jesus is. You know, Satan, through the agency of evil men, has sought to destroy the church. And the church, I mean by the church, is people who become a member of the body of Christ. It's Christ's body. Herod killed James with the sword. The leaders 
of religion of that day, Stone Stephens, the first Christian martyr, urging them on with fury and hatred. Soon there was wholesale slaughter. Christians were flung to lines in the Roman sports arena. Some were wrapped in the skins of wild animals so that they would be more savagely, savagely attacked by dogs. Some were crucified. Others were smeared with pitch and set on fire. And these torches were used by the Emperor Nero to illuminate his gardens. You don't die like that for a fable. You don't die that way for a lie, for a fabrication, or for a fallacy. The attempt was made to stamp out the church at her birth. Polycarp, who was a student of John, who wrote Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel according to John. After their death, he was called to renounce Christ and they wouldn't take his life. He was at the stake ready to be burned and they said, you just confess that Jesus is not the Christ and we will let you go. He said, 86 years have I served him and I will not renounce him now. Another piece of evidence that the church not only was demonstrated there, but in the hearts and lives of many people. We could mention Paul, we could mention Peter who were, who were put to death. We could mention others. The third one that I want to mention as evidence is the change of life. It's the miracle of change and transformed life. Paul was one of those. This is undeniable evidence for Christ and his teaching. You may argue about the trustworthiness of a Bible if you want to. You may find justifiable criticism for the church as a group of followers of Christ and its organization, and sometimes it deviates from that which God would have it be. But you can never deny the evidence of a godly life, of a person who is acquainted with Christ and has a relationship with Christ and changes from serving the devil to serving Christ. The multitudes were amazed when they saw the disciples of Christ who previously were timid and afraid, speaking with a power and a boldness that were supernatural. The pagans of the first century uh, could hardly believe that so many could give up their pagan and immoral practices to suffer and to die courageously for an unseen being and king. Indeed, it was the changed lives of men and women that won the greatest amount of converts to Christianity. 
Jesus said, this is the way you'll know. My disciples is how they love one another. The ancient world was shattered when Saul of Tarsus, one of the greatest intellectuals of his day, was transformed from a blasphemer and a proud and a haughty Pharisee and a persecutor of God's kingdom, of the church, of people who had become one with Christ into a follower and a disciple of the despised Jesus of Nazareth. When Christ confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul naturally asked, Who is he? Who are you, Lord? But toward the close of his life, many years afterwards, he expressed his years of proven experience concerning Jesus and his head, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I know him whom I believe it, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God shall supply all of my needs. When he was in me, all down through the centuries, Christ has been transforming human lives, not only the lives of intellectuals, but the lives of thousands of ordinary men and women. He can reform, change yours. While I was, just before I left Texas, my 16-year-old, six-foot-three grandson, who will be a senior this year, came to me, and he, and he does a journal work. He's thinking about majoring in journalism. He's going to University of Missouri. He said, that's the greatest journalistic school there is. He came in, and and I was, I was almost shocked to see how professional he came in. He said, Papa, he said, could I have just a minute with you? And I said, sure. We sat down on the bed where Jeannie and I had to stay. And he said, may I ask you a question? And I said, well, certainly. He said, why uh, did you make a minister? and choose that as your profession and your web life. I said, Trey, that's a, that's a wonderful question, and it's a, it covers a lot of time. And I said, I don't know that I can ask, answer it just like you, you want it. But you know, when I was 13, I lost my dad. And I guess, uh, since then, I was always identifying with people, and I said, we had ministers come to our house twice a year, every year for 10 days, and they preached Christ. And I said, I guess I was reaching out for, to know the answers. And I said, I was always interested, but when I went in the service, when I went overseas, and when I faced death, I, I told God, I said, you know, you spare my life. I'll, I'll give my life for preaching the gospel when I get back. And I said, Trey, that isn't that that motivated me at first, but I said that's that that changes. I said when I came back and started school, I tested, and they said, well, business, and, and I said, well, okay, uh, but then they then I said later it was the, the word, it was Christ, 
And I said, when I saw the, how torn the world was and how little they knew about the... Uh, I said, I wouldn't read the, anything but the King James Version. And when I tried to grapple with this religion, I saw, well, you know, to really be truthful, you have to know the Greek. And I said, I've been studying, I studied that. And I said, the more you study, the more you delve in. And, and, and I said, the bottom line is, I said, in all of this turmoil, I said, did you know the world, six billion people and two-thirds of it in that book you gave me, two-thirds of them don't even know who he is. And I said, to answer your question, I guess, I, I guess because I wanted people to know about Christ, and I just had a servant attitude, I wanted to do that. And I said, it's a relationship, Trey. But everybody needs. And I, and, and I asked him, I said, you know, have you read this Mere Christianity by C.E. Lewis? He said, no. I said, I'll send you a little book. Because I said, he's an atheist. He was an unbeliever. And he changed. He believes that Christ, was. Well, he believed before he died that Christ was the Son of God. Now, you know, the answer, who is he, has to be answered by each one of us. And it has to be a relationship. He's a live God who's at the right hand of God. And he asks people to confess that he is the son of the living God and turn away from their own selfish ideas and ways and come to him and he will renew them. And they're born again in the, their own death of their own self. And they rise and born again to Christ. And that's what can happen today to the person who believes and confesses him. And you have that opportunity as we stand together and say.